Welcome to another episode of Always Hope, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario, and I'm happy to have you with us today. Have you ever wondered why the Bible makes so much reference to the past? Up and down the Old and New Testaments, there are repeated appeals to remember the works of the Lord or for God to remember His children. This is because, according to Scripture, memory plays an important role in cultivating hope and building our relationship with God. Hope and memory are the focus of today's episode, and I couldn't think of anyone better to have this discussion with than renowned Scripture scholar Dr. Brant Petrie. Dr. Petrie serves as a research professor of theology at the Augustine Institute and the author of numerous books and resources on the Bible and the Jewish roots of Christianity. In today's episode, we examine the ways memory is important for relationship, how the liturgy is an act of remembrance, how to use scripture to pray through painful memories, and what repentance of our sins means in our relationship with Christ. May this episode help you to better understand how God sees and remembers you. At the end of the episode, I have a little bonus content for you. Dr. Petrie and I geek out for a few minutes about the music of Andrew Peterson. We deeply appreciate his music and wanted to share that love with you. This has very little to do with the subject of hope and memory, but we hope you enjoy it. And now, let's get into the show. for being here with me, man. I'm, I'm so, so grateful for this opportunity to, to share some time and be able to talk about something that uh, I guess is a little different, maybe a, yeah. a little, a little bit of a unique perspective. Um, so grateful to, to have this time together to, to be able to talk. It's great to be here, Mario. Yeah. Thanks, man. Okay. So throughout scripture, I've been struck by how much reference there is to things that God has done in the past. Many of the Psalms are simply that, singing praises of the good things God has done for Israel. I don't know how many of the Psalms recount the, the Exodus event, but it just seems like there's a lot of them. Why? Like, why is there this appeal to recall things? Um, and why is it important for Israel and then for us now as, as the new Israel, as the church, uh, to remember these things that God has done? Yeah. Um, wow. There's so much where, where to start. Let, let's go back to the beginning. I, you know, my own kind of reflection on this topic of memory in Scripture uh, and memory in our relationship with God goes back to a conversation you and I had. It was kind of spontaneous uh, when you asked me about it. You know, what's one of the first times memory occurs in the Bible? And from what I can tell, one of the first occurrences is actually in the story of Noah and the flood. Mm. Um, and it's one of the lines that will actually strike people after the, you have the famous, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of rain and Noah's in the ark. It says in chapter eight of Genesis that God remembered Noah, right? And his family. And it, it kind of can throw you off for a minute because it, it, you, it, can, it can sound as if it can create the impression that God has forgotten Noah and that he's like, oh, wait, there's that guy down there, you know, and there's this flood. Maybe I should do something about it. Uh, and that's an impression that the English word can create. Uh, but if you look at the Hebrew word for remember or memory, zakar in Hebrew, uh, it has a much more rich, a much richer and deep meaning in Scripture that if you begin with the story of Noah and you kind of run throughout, you're going to see that this is actually a really central concept uh, in sacred Scripture and also in the Catholic faith. Because in that passage and, and throughout the Old Testament, um, the word for remember or memory to, or remembrance, any one of those forms, uh, always means not just to recall some event, Mm -hmm. or recall some person, but to renew the covenant relationship with that person, right? wow. which is really what God's doing, right? He remembers Noah, and he remembers his covenant, his promise. He remembers Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. You see this over and over again. God remembers his people. And what that means is he renews his relationship with them through some word or some deed, some action of his usually an act of uh, redemption or saving, a saving act on his part. Uh, and even in Genesis chapter 9, when he gives the rainbow after the flood, it says, whenever I see that rainbow, I'll remember the covenant. I'll remember this relationship. So memory and relationship from the beginning in the Bible go together, right? Um, and, and one of the things that you start to see, if you start to kind of run through the Old Testament, it, it are two, two things. First, 
Whenever people are in a right relationship with God, it'll be described as remembering God, mm-hmm. remembering God. So, for example, in the Ten Commandments, God says to the Israelites, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right. Um, and what does that mean? Well, you take a day to rest and renew your relationship with God to worship the Lord. That's that's what remembrance is about. Uh, conversely, when people fall out of relationship with God, it's described as them forgetting God. Okay. So uh, best example, of this is from the book of Judges, which is like, I don't want I, the darkest of the books of the Old Testament. It's definitely the most gruesome. It's the most violent. And sometimes people are put off by that because they're like, why is this in the Bible? You have stories of, of, of incest and polygamy and murder and even dismemberment. I mean, it's a really, really violent book. And so the, sometimes people wonder, well, why, why is all that in the Bible? Well, it's because at the beginning of the book of Judges, it says that the people of Israel forgot the Lord. Wow. What does that mean? What well, doesn't mean that they, that they forgot that there was a God or that they, you know, intellectually they, you know, they, they, they were absent-minded about the reality of God. It means that they forgot the covenant. They fell out of relationship with God. So when they forget the Lord, they turn to other gods. They turn to idols. They turn away from him. So, um, and, and bad things happen. Right. Sin, suffering, exile, all those things are the result of forgetting God. Scripturally speaking, then, memory isn't just about recalling then events. It's deeper, as you said. Yeah. It's about relationship yeah. and intimacy. Yeah. And, and with God, the covenant that he is, that he is, the promises in the covenant that he has formed with us, and that when we remember, it's not just that we're recalling but that we're reliving mm-hmm. and reactualizing that 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 experience that love that relationship that that god has for us yeah i, I would say it this way i would say there are a couple things that happen when you renew when you rem- remember in scripture uh, on the one hand yes you do recall what god has done sure so you mentioned for example the psalms this happens over and over again like psalm 77 uh, and psalm 105 and those are two Psalms where I just read those two uh, Psalms in the last couple of weeks. Are you I had them with awesome. prayer. Yeah. So <laughs> that's part of that's yeah. what's going in my mind as we're talking yeah, about oh, this. Well, so. cool. Yeah, because well, those yeah. are two of the memory Psalms. Psalm yeah. 77, Psalm 105. And in both of them, what they're saying to Israel, the psalmist is saying, remember, not just in a vague way who God is, but specific things that he has done, like the parting of the Red Sea. Remember the miracles that he has accomplished, like bringing water out of the rock in the book of Exodus, uh, delivering the people from slavery at the time of Pharaoh in the Exodus from Egypt. Uh, and And the point of remembering what God has done is because the way you know who a person is, is two ways, by what they say and what they do. Think about it for a minute. If I meet a stranger and I've never heard them speak and I don't know anything that they've done, can I really say that I know that person? Can I really say that I have a relationship with that person? No, no you can't. Of course not. And insofar as God is not, you know, something like the force, right? Uh, but someone, the way we get to know him is through the stories in scripture of what he has said and what he has done. So when we recall those things, it becomes a, a way of entering into relationship with God and renewing that relationship with him which is always expressed in scripture through the, the word covenant, uh, which just real quick to define it. Please. In, in the Bible, a covenant, uh, the word covenant does not mean like a contract, like, you know, you sign a contract to your employer. It's, it's a sacred family bond between persons. That's the definition of a covenant, a sacred relationship that makes you into family. Right? And, and the, basically, the, the fundamental idea of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that the God of the universe, the God who made the universe, wants to enter into a covenant with his people. He wants to enter into a sacred family bond with his people. Right Now, if we're going to enter into a relationship with God, then it's essential that that relationship be punctuated by special moments where we remember who he is, what he's done. And this is really important, who we are in his eyes, who we are in the relationship. And as human beings, we do this all the time, right? I mean, right. So what's uh, the analogy of that to, to human level? Uh, well, I'm a married man. So let me think of the, the most important one, the anniversary. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. It's become proverbial about just how 
much trouble a man will get in. If Do you he know when your anniversary is? Of course I know my anniversary. What is it? For a second. No, 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 I'm just, I'm just messing around. It's December 29th. I put him on the spot. <laughs> December 29th, five golden rings, the fifth day of Christmas. All right, Amen. I remember that because of the ring. I had to pay for the ring. I remember that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, if a man forgets his, his anniversary, why is that such a big deal to his wife? Well, because... The remembrance of a moment when that covenant was sealed, when the, when, the, when the matrimonial bond was established, it doesn't just recall what happened, it renews the relationship. And the same thing happens in conversation all the time, especially my wife and I, we've been married 23 years. Uh, we met when we were 15. And more and more as we age, I've noticed us saying, hey, do you remember when? Do you remember when? And it's precisely when we, now oftentimes she says that to me and I say, I don't because I'm absent-minded and I'm a professor. Um, but when we remember, we in some way make those past events present again. We represent them, right? Not just in the sense of representing them in our minds and our words, but representing them, remaking them present, right? Representation. And that's how memory works in scripture. Beautiful. So, yeah, so what you're going to see over and over again in the Bible is because God relates to human beings in a human way, like he, he stoops down to our level in order to bring us up to his, he knows that human beings need those moments of remembering and renewing relationship. So a large part of what he's going to be doing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is constantly calling his people to remember. Let me ask you this then. What is the difference then between recalling and remembering these events, whether scripturally speaking or even a relationship, and then falling into the trap of nostalgia, mm. of rethinking that those moments are better than where I am today, or those are the good old times as opposed to where I am today? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I need to think about it for a second. Um, I would say this. If you look at, say, for example, the Israelites, um, the way they would remember God's actions and his identity was through their liturgy, through the liturgical year. So perhaps the most important feast that they would have every single year would be the feast of Passover. Mm -hmm. In the springtime, um, they would celebrate a festival. They'd all go to Jerusalem, uh, make a pilgrimage there to offer sacrifice, to renew the covenant, and to remember what God had done when he set the 12 tribes of Israel free from Egypt. And in the context of that liturgical celebration, a communal celebration, a family celebration, when you come together, um, with the, 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 the Jewish rabbis had a tradition. They said, every man who celebrates the Passover must regard it as if he himself came out of Egypt. That's why he can say in the book of Exodus, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So it doesn't matter if eight centuries or 10 centuries have passed since the time of the Exodus. Um, what God did for them in the past was, in a way, what he's doing for you today. Okay, So he is always the God of the present. He's not the God of the past. We're not looking back to the past saying, oh, like it was so great how God did that then, but where is he now? The point is that the same God who delivered Israel then is the God who reigns over us today, who's in relationship with us today. I think that's very encouraging because... I know some people, and myself included, when we yeah. have these moments of faith, these, these dry spells or these times of darkness yes. that, or crises or whatever, that we can very easily fall into the trap of, well, where is God right now? Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. I can't hear him right now. He was so clear to me a month or so ago in prayer, and I was getting all the sweetness and all the joy, all that was kind of happening, the butterflies are there, yeah. and now it's not there because all these things are happening in my life or whatever else, even just dryness and prayer, which is normal part of the, the spiritual journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in fact, it's, it's crazy that you bring that up because uh, I was just reading through uh, some of the spiritual writers, John of the Cross, for example, and he talks about how the purification of our memory in the spiritual life is actually an essential element in building up the virtue of hope, right? So he says, Use that out. Let's go. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, he, so we have three theological virtues. You have faith, hope, and love, right? And um, in order to grow in those virtues, we have to purify our intellect to grow in the virtue of faith. In other words, we need to purify it of falsehood and learn the truth, right? Uh, in order to purify, uh, sorry, back it up. In order to grow in charity and love, we have to purify our will. So we have to learn how to will the good of another, to love God and to love our neighbor more and more each day. But what's interesting, he says, in order to grow in the virtue of hope, we have to purify our memory. 
We have to purify our memory because it's easy for us to forget God, to forget the good things that he's done, to forget the salvation that he's won in the past, not just in the Old Testament, but above all through the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. And when we forget, we fall out of relationship and we lose hope. Mm. We tend to fall into despair, right? We tend to turn in on ourselves. So one of the things that John of the Cross says is that um, it's very important. It's very important for us to meditate uh, when we pray, to take time to just think about God, to remember him, to remember his word, to read his word, to read about who he is and what he's done for us and who we are in his eyes so that we build up the virtue of hope, so that when we're going through a valley in our life, we know that, that the God who made the universe has not abandoned us, but that he will see us through, he will bring us through, he's going to walk with us. And he'll say that in the Old Testament. He'll say, uh, remember what God did for you? Um, and in Psalm 63, he says, on my bed, I remember you when I meditate at night. Right? Uh, and what God constantly calls the people to do is not to forget what he's done and to remember I am with you. That's one of his constant exhortations. Remember, I am with you. That builds up the virtue of hope. You're listening to Always Hope with Dr. Mario. If you have been enjoying this conversation with Dr. Brant Petrie, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher so you don't miss out on future episodes. If you have really been enjoying the show, show a little love by giving us a good rating and leaving a review. Now, back to the episode. As we're talking and having this conversation about memory and scripture, what's going through my mind is, well, my background as a counselor and how memory plays out biologically speaking, neurologically, we know, or even just psychologically, we know that memory is actually quite fickle, Mm -hmm. that the things that we recall can change based on how we're feeling today. Mm -hmm. Many examples of that. One would be, I, I moved around a lot when I was a kid. Sure. And I went back to one of my early homes, childhood homes when I was, that we, that we lived that when I was like five or seven or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of these apartments that it was like this stage that we would like play and dance on or whatever. And when I went back and saw it or I was having a conversation with my sister who's older than me, she's like, it wasn't a stage. It was like a, there was like a bump in the carpet that you guys would like step <laughs> up on. Right. <laughs> you know, but yeah. as like a four year, I was like, oh, it's a stage and all this thing. Sure. And so now when I go back to the memory, yeah. am I rethinking it as a four year old? Whereas the stage and everything was grand and the lights, mm-hmm. or am I thinking of it now as an adult where it was sure. just a bump in the carpet, right? So I can, we can do this with our memory. We know that there are studies of traumatic events where somebody will have something and then they'll, they'll ask them what, where they were when the event happened. Mm-hmm. And then 18 months later, they'll ask them again and it'll be a different story. We know that there's a fickle element to, to, to memory. Right. I see this also playing out in marriage counseling where people come at me who are very upset and they'll share the exact same story and the wife will have one perspective sure. and the husband will have another perspective. And are either of them lying? I don't, not necessarily. They're both telling their story mm-hmm. from their perspective and their emotional needs to have to, you know, subtly make themselves look better or mm-hmm. make the other look worse or whatever it is that plays into us. So what I'm saying is that we know that memory has this fickle nature that it actually is very subjected to how I'm experiencing my memory in this right. present moment. So I bring that up because with everything that we're saying in, to approach this topic in, in scripture, it's almost as if God knows that that's the way we recollect things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he created us. And so he knows that there's this element or this part of our memory that is going to be fickle, that we're going we're gonna to lose sight of things, or we're going to tend to want to see things even in our past a particular way because of how I'm feeling right now as I'm recalling those events that we need something other than our subjectivity to anchor our memory in. And the gift of scripture is that. And the gift of the constant appeal to these these markers where God manifested his love, manifested himself, desired to to grow deeper in relationship with us, that we need these anchors, these these memories of hope to put our, our, our faith in to put our, our belief, our relationships in rather than just our, our often fickle kind of subjective 
experiences. Yes, which is why he gives us the church and the liturgy. Tell right? me more. So think about it for just a minute. What's one of the unique things about being a Catholic? It's that our Sunday worship and our, even our daily worship is not simply uh, what Father so-and-so feels like preaching or teaching about. The church has a liturgical calendar that we all participate in, not as individuals, but as members of a community, of a community that remembers who God is, of a community that remembers what he's done, and of a community that remembers who we are in his eyes. And so the whole liturgical year, we have uh, Lent, right, in, in, in the springtime leading up to the Feast of Easter, which, by the way, in, in uh, Latin is Pascha, which is just the Aramaic word for Passover. So we celebrate that, too. I was talking about the Jews earlier, but we have our Passover. That's Easter. Uh, we've got the, the festival of Christmas in the winter, right? Um, and Advent, the season of Advent, moving up to that. And then we have ordinary time where we're walking through the life of Jesus over the course of the year. Why do we do that as Catholics? In a nutshell, that is the church on an annual basis teaching us and helping us remember what God has done and who he is and who we are. So during ordinary time, we are remembering the life of Christ, but not just, oh, what did he do back then? But as if we're walking through it with him in order by going through the gospels in each order, like year A, we go through gospel Matthew or year B, going through Mark or year C, Luke. Same thing with Lent. During Lent in particular. On the Sundays of Lent, we go, uh, if you watch the Old Testament readings, they start with creation and then they go through the fall of Adam and Eve and then Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob all the way up through so that the church is remembering all of salvation history leading up to its fulfillment in the passion, death, resurrection and resurrection of Christ. Same thing with Christmas. Why do we all love Christmas? Because we're remembering the moment when God became man, when he came into this world and brought light into the darkness so that the darkness does not overcome it. The whole liturgy is designed, uh, and which, by the way, what are we doing in the liturgy? We're reading scripture at every one of those masses, right, over and over and over again. The whole thing is designed to purify our memories as a community so that it isn't based on just what one person happens to remember, but what the church as a body remembers. This is why we have four gospels, not just one. It's the memories of the apostles collectively together um, giving us a portrait of who Jesus Christ was what he did, uh, and, and who he sees us as, his bride. And all of that, if you have any doubts about that, just think about what is the climax of the liturgy? What words are at the very heart of what we do at every single Mass? The priest takes a chalice, the priest takes the host, and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory of me. Do this in remembrance of me. You can translate it either way. The Greek word there is anamnesis, and it literally means remembrance, memory. It's the kind of memory that doesn't just recall the past, but it makes the past present. And, and as Catholics, we know it does that in, in an ontological way because the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary is now made present through the sacrifice of the Mass. So what happened 2,000 years ago, and which Christ brought into eternity in his death, resurrection, and then ascension in heaven, is now being made present on every altar every time the Eucharist is celebrated. So our whole religion, you could say, is oriented around an act of remembrance, and that act of remembrance is the Eucharist. The gift of the liturgy is, I mean, so many, but that we are invited then to be participants yeah. in this act of remembrance. Right. And a true remembrance. And a too. true That's remembrance. I, like, yeah, I didn't absolutely. really get your point no, earlier no, no, if no, I didn't no. hit it. No, no, no. These are the true memories of God through his inspired word, right? Yeah. So when we talk about the memory of God, if we can say that, yeah. obviously God outside of time, sure. memory wouldn't be this thing that's in the past. Yeah. This covenant exists now, exists forever, exists all the time. He's the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. There's an eternal dimension to it. In yeah. the liturgy then is as I've heard it said, is, is the, the, the prayer, the eternal prayer of the, of the Son to the Father, the eternal love and relationship that's, that's happening continually between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that's there. And then we, in temporal dimension and time, get moments 
where we can step into that eternal prayer in a in an ontological and a real and a represented in a real way sacramental a sacramental way right through through the mystery of 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 the sacraments of the church so we as the faithful back to this concept of personal memory or communal memory how do we know jesus right we're invited by the church to be able to step into a community of believers who who remembers the goodness of the lord and that means like just to bring this down a couple levels, like the invitation that's there for us at every mass then is for us to bring everything that we have in our hearts, in our lives. So they don't just get stuck on, on because the two are supposed to meet, right? The, right. the sense of community, the sense of Jesus, the sense of the liturgy is all there. But then us bringing our particular experiences of that week, the struggles, the memories of the, the good and the memories of the bad and bringing all of that into prayer at mass. Absolutely. Yeah, it's in a sense in a sense you could say it's where the memory of God and the, and and our human memory meet one another and he purifies ours, he elevates it and he makes it an acceptable offering to him. Like we offer that as a sacrifice to him, right? What does the priest say? Pray brethren that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the almighty father. So we're laying those memories, laying those sufferings laying those pains and those prayers and those hopes and dreams, all that we're laying that on the altar. Um, we have the grace of being able to do that because of our baptism. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, when we receive the, the virtues of faith, hope, and love, that's when we, the life of the Trinity was poured into our souls. And, and so there is a real sense in which, um, you, you, you said it very well, in which time and eternity meet in every single Mass. Um, uh, because that, because the 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 moment in history the, the of Jesus' passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, what he calls his hour, is a unique moment. Uh, all other moments pass away, but this one, time and eternity are like wedded to one another through his incarnation and then through his death and resurrection. And so we're able to enter into that eternal now, right, at every single Eucharist. And and what we bring then to that is our identity who we are, who we've been, when we've forgotten God, and also when we have not forgotten God. All that we're bringing to the Mass, all that we're laying on the altar. And so it's really important to remember that the reason we come to Mass, we don't just go straight into the Eucharist, but we always hear the words of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, precisely because the Church recognizes we need to be reminded of who God is, what He said, and what He's done. So that we always get to know him better and we prepare our hearts to encounter him in that moment. Which, if I might add as on a kind of side note that's a little sure. more negative, which is one of the problems we face today, um, is that we don't know the scriptures as well as we should. And if we don't know the story of what God has done and what he has said, it's no wonder that we don't know who he is as well as we could, right? Because like I said before, if I don't know, if I've never seen a person do anything or heard them say anything, do I really know them? Well, the same thing's true for God. I might know what he is. He's the omnipotent one. He's the omniscient one. But I've never, if I've never heard the, the story of what he said and what he's done, then do I really know him? Well, the church gives us that opportunity at every single mass, at every single Eucharist to really listen to him so that we can get to know him better and better and better. We can never tap that out. And the same thing's true in a marriage and a relationship too. Uh, I, I, I cannot imagine my wife would uh, be pleased if I said to her, you know, we really don't need to talk. I know you, you know me. We don't need to talk anymore. Yeah, I don't need right? to say I love you anymore. Right? I don't we're, need to say I love you we're anymore. We're fine. We're fine. No, that's not how relationships were. There's because each person, even a human person is a kind of inexhaustible mystery. We can always plumb the mystery more deeply by uh, getting to know them better and, and also by remembering where we've been together, what we've done together, how we've grown. We can go back to the liturgy and eternity and time kind yeah, of sure. meeting together. If people are still kind of lost with that, I, I want to invite the listeners to actually listen to a song um, by one of our favorite musicians, uh, Mr. Andrew Peterson, yeah. who is not a Catholic, but is Anglican, I believe. So he has a liturgical mindset, yeah. uh, at least in his, in his prayer. In one of his recent albums, The Resurrection Letters, the, the prologue, where he sings about um, Jesus dying on the cross and the whole album's dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. The first song, The Last Words, 
which so, the first time I listened to it, I, I, I just cried because I, I got instantly what he was saying. And so the song is him just singing the seven last words of Christ with others, but in a harmony fashion where the words are, are layered on top of one another. Mm-hmm. And what struck me was exactly what you were saying, which is that Jesus spoke these seven last words, certainly in time, in chronology, right. but by putting them all together and layering them on top of one another in a harmony in music, He's communicating that, or Andrew Peterson's communicating to us, that not only did Jesus sing this in chronology, but he sang this all together at one time. It's like an eternal word. It's the one word of Christ. Who is the word made flesh, and who with these seven words redeemed the world. Uh, And now through them enables us to participate in eternity. And which, by the way, this only dawned on me this morning. What's one of those words? The thief to Jesus. Remember me mm. when you come into your kingdom. Mm. Now that isn't, on one level, the thief is asking Jesus to call him to mind. But what we know is that the deeper level, what's happening? When Jesus remembers you, he brings you into relationship with him. This is Dr. Mario. Thanks for listening to the Always Hope podcast and allowing us to be part of your day. If you have enjoyed this episode so far, hold on tight because this is the last break before we jump into a deep conversation about how to use scripture to pray through painful memories and to ease our own self-reproach. It's really good stuff. May it bless you as much as it has blessed me. Here we go. Let's think about for a few seconds here, for a few minutes, let's, let's talk about people who have bad memories, mm. bad memories of the church, maybe even experiences in their life where they have misattributed certain circumstances. I shouldn't say that that harshly, but sometimes we can, we can blame God for the bad things that have happened to us in our life. Where were you God? And I know that's an honest prayer because even Jesus experiences that, but there's a, there's an honest prayer of where is God? What, what words could we offer to them? Yeah. That's a tough question. Um, I would say two things. First, just drawing on the spiritual traditions of the church. Not, I mentioned St. John of the Cross earlier. You can find the same thing in the imitation of Christ um, uh, by St. Thomas Kempis uh, or Thomas Kempis. He's kind of mysterious figure. We don't exactly know who he was. But in both of those books, you see um, in the mainstream of the Catholic spiritual tradition an emphasis on the purification of the memory through meditation. So one of the first things I would say is if you're a person who has painful memories, you need to spend time filling your mind with the word of God in prayer, reading scripture, not in a, in not so much as in a sense of studying scripture, like to try to increase your intellectual understanding, but in the sense of quietly slowly reading it as a word from God to you and filling your mind with it, pondering it prayerfully, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, whatever amount of time you have or need on a daily basis. Um, so that, as Paul says, we become transformed by the renewal of our minds. So that's the first thing. Just prayer is the and not just any kind of prayer, not just talking to God, but allowing his word to fill our minds and our memories, even to commit scriptures to memory. That'd be a second recommendation to just um, to take time to find a verse of scripture uh, that you can memorize uh, so that you make what you do with that is you make it a part of you. Right. Right. And there's a real healing uh, power to that um, that has been demonstrated throughout the centuries. Uh, and then the third thing I would say it would be there's a sense in which, and again, you just you correct me if I'm wrong because I'm just, no, a, I'm just one guy with a Bible here. Um, but there's also a sense in which we need to not just look to the past, but also f- look to what God's doing now and look to the future. Uh, you made you made me think of a verse from Paul, um, his letter to the Philippians, which by the way. If you're struggling with hope, you know, a hopelessness, read Philippians because it is, it is a letter about joy and a letter about hope. And toward the end of the letter to the Philippians, Paul says this. He says, 
uh, Philippians 3, verse 13. Brethren, I don't consider that I have... I'm sorry, let me back up to verse 12 just to put in context. He says, not that I have already obtained this, meaning the resurrection of the dead. Right? We're not there yet. Or I'm already perfect. But I press on and make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So this is an interesting use. It's a different use of forgetting than you'll see elsewhere in the Bible. Like it's one thing to forget God. But here what Paul is saying is uh, to forget the past, not in the sense that, you know, to blot, black it out or blot it out or kind of suppress it, but rather to focus my eyes on what God is doing now and also straining forward to the future. In other words, the answer to every prayer and every pain and every sorrow that we have is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. The catechism says that. The Bible makes that very clear. When Christ was raised from the dead, God answered every prayer and every longing of the human heart that we have ever had. Therefore, for those of us who are struggling with painful memory, what Paul is saying here is keep your eyes fixed on the prize of the resurrection, on the hope of the resurrection, on the hope of your sharing in the resurrection. We're not there yet, right? Um, but he, as he says elsewhere in Romans, you know, this slight momentary affliction that we're experiencing now is nothing compared with the glory to be revealed. So I, I, I would just the third thing would just be to cultivate a hope and a certain forgetfulness in the sense of leaving behind the past where it is and, and straining ahead to the future. Um, because that's really where God is. He's not in the past. He's here with us now and he's leading us to a future uh, full of hope. Yeah, I'm struck by Jesus when he comes back after the resurrection and he still has the scars Yeah, that he doesn't, it's not like he comes back. He and, doesn't eliminate the past. He doesn't eliminate the past, right? No. It's not like he's, he redeems he, it. He redeems it. That's the word. Exactly. It's not like he just comes back and he doesn't have the wounds or the scars anymore. They're there because they're part of his experience in as much as our past is part of our experience also. And so the forgetfulness that you're speaking about, isn't this, I'm going way back here, total recall <laughs> back in the eighties, right? This, yeah. this sense where God's just going to magic wand and make you forget all the bad things you've done in your life or no, all no, the no. bad things that had happened to you in your life yeah. that rather he wants to, to be present in that and to redeem those memories in his own way, in his own timing so that everything he can use for his good, everything he can use for our salvation. And so he brings all of that into our experience to lead us then into the promised land that he has for us. Absolutely. I mean, um, if he wanted to erase the past and erase sim human sinfulness from the record, uh, so to speak, uh, he would never have given us the Old Testament. Because <laughs> what the Old <laughs> Testament is, is one giant testimony to just how weak and sinful human beings are in Lord have mercy. If he would have, and he could, none of us would be here. That's no, <laughs> I mean, that's like, exactly like right. none of us would exist. And in reality. also we would be able to fool ourselves into thinking that we're not that bad and we're not that weak. Yeah. So and, let me say when yeah. I first read the old Testament as an undergraduate student, sure. I spent probably that whole semester because it was an intro to Old Testament class judging the, the Israelites. Yeah. The whole time I was like, don't they get it? What's the matter with them? Now, 20 years later, I'm like, oh, these are my people. That's because you've grown in self-knowledge. That's, that's right. That's exactly. And in humility, which and are both good. Yeah, which, right. Uh, uh, one, of, one of my teachers used to say that if you can't see yourself committing any of the sins you read in the Old Testament, then you haven't understood them. You just, you don't, you don't either, either you don't understand the sin itself or you don't understand your own weakness. So again, how do we just, maybe you've already said it, but just, it's a, I think it's important because I know people who beat themselves up mm -hmm. for the sins that they've committed yeah, and right. they can't see God. They can't hear God because of the, the sins, the, the, oh, the issues see, that, see, they, that they've at. committed okay. onto other people. I see. Okay. Well, 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 here's another aspect of memory that's really important. Um, one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 31. It's the prophecy of the new covenant. Okay. Um, at the end of this long and sordid history of idolatry and adultery and murder and theft and lying and a whole host of other sins, at failure after failure after failure, Israel is constantly cheated on God. He actually describes 
Israel as his bride, and he's the bridegroom, and they've been a very, very adulterous and unfaithful spouse. And the end of all that, in the book of Jeremiah, God says, the days are coming. This is in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, if the reader might want to check, listener might want to check it out. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of the hand of, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. And listen to this. He says, uh, verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Okay. Break that up. Okay. On the one hand, God doesn't want us to forget the history of human sinfulness because it's important for us growing an understanding of our weakness, our tendency to sin, um, our original sin, why we're even like this, why we are broken. On the other hand, he promises that in the new covenant, when he redeems our sin, that he will forget it, that he will remember it no more. Now, when you and I forget something, it's one thing. But when the God of the universe says he will forget it, what he's describing there is not that he, that he will not intellectually no longer know it. Obviously, God is omniscient. He knows everything. But what it means, it's a very powerful way of describing just how absolute his forgiveness is. There's another image from the psalm. He says that when God forgives our sin, he casts our sin from him as far as the east is from the west. Now, how far is the east from the west? Well, it's literally an infinite distance. So that's the distance between God and our sin that has been forgiven. Now, if that doesn't give you some consolation or some hope, I don't know what will. Because what God is saying is, look, when I've forgotten your sin, in a sense, it doesn't exist anymore. And it creates a space of freedom, right, to live in a renewed relationship that's not bound by those sins of the past, but that's renewed by the new heart and the new covenant relationship that has come to us through Jesus Christ. So um, that's precisely what happened on the cross. Right. That's right. precisely what happened on the cross, right? Yeah. So to bring this together, that's, that's the, when you said earlier about taking these scripture passages yeah. to cultivate your memory. Yeah. To not just see yourself with this stick that you're constantly beating yourself up because of the things that you've done, mm-hmm. but to see them as, as God sees them. Absolutely. And anchoring, again, that memory on God's memory, not just on yourself. Now, again, I know there's, there's justice and there's real consequences oh, to sure, our sin that need to play out. And we have to, we have to deal with those. But I mean, this we have con- the doctrine of purgatory and, and penance. Those are both aspects of Catholicism that deal with the real consequences of a- sin. Absolutely. But this deep kind of reproach of myself, that's the thing that, that is not of the Lord. That's right. And the relationship, right? So sin has consequences, and we have to repair the damage that is done. Uh, but when I say to a person, let me use an analogy, for example. Just, it's a simple analogy, but let's say my son throws a baseball through the window, okay, and he breaks the window. And I come out, and maybe I'm a little upset at first, right? I'm, I'm German. I got German. I'm French and German, but the German comes out every now and then. All right, so let's say I'm upset at first. I'm angry. He said, Dad, I didn't mean to. It was an accident. Oh, okay. All right. So. Well, son, I forgive you. What does that mean? I forgive you. It means that our relationship, that like that 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 rift there that was there for one, is reestablished. I forgive you, right? It renews the relationship, but there's still a broken window that has to be fixed, right? Correct. So he might have to cut a few extra yards to pay for it, or whatever it might be, to deal with the consequences of that sin. So forgiveness doesn't ignore the consequences of sin. God saying, I will remember their sin no more doesn't mean he ignores the consequences of sin. What it means is that he doesn't allow the sin to become a barrier to the covenant relationship. As long as there's repentance on our side of the relationship, that the love of God's going to flow in our direction as our love flows back in his so that the covenant relationship is restored and renewed. And that may sound so basic, but I think we need to be reminded of that, that these are the promises that God is opening, and that's what we get with everything you said, that the, the whole point of Scripture mm-hmm. is for us to see how the God who made the universe wants to be in covenant with me, with you, with the entire human race. And the barriers for that 
aren't coming from him. It's not on his side of the lane. They're not on his side of the lane. They're, they're, they're from us and our inability to receive that love and our ability, inability to believe in the promises that he has and in our inability to trust in his goodness and in his providence. And that we need, again, bringing this back to the concept of memory that we need to continue to be reminded of how good he is and how faithful he is and that we have to be faithful in return. Absolutely. You may, as you were saying that, you made me think that exhibit A, the best example of this is from the gospel of John, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I wrote about this in one of my books called Jesus, the bridegroom. And, and in that book, I try to show you how um, the, the famous story of Jesus meeting this Samaritan woman who's had five husbands at the well at Jacob's well in Samaria is actually a Jew from a Jewish perspective would be a kind of betrothal scene because when you go back to the old Testament, whenever there's a, a woman and a well, there's always a wedding. Uh, that's, you know, Abraham sends uh, his servant to meet Isaac's future bride at a well. Uh, uh, Jacob and Rachel meet the mother and father of Israel. They meet at a well at, uh, and, and kind of established Moses meets his future wife Zipporah, at a well in the old Testament. So when Jesus sits down at a well beside a woman and she's the only one there and he's the only one there, any first century Jew would have known this is, this is like a betrothal scene, except, of course, we know that Jesus isn't going to get married in an ordinary way. So what's going on here? Well, the reality is he's inviting her into a covenant relationship to become his bride in the sense of becoming a member of his bride, the church, the people of faith. But there's a problem, which is she has a past of sin, right? And he wants to draw that out of her, not to shame her, but to heal it. So he says, go and call your husband. And she says, well, I have no husband. And he says, that's right. You've had five husbands, right? Uh, And the one you have now, the man you have now is not your husband. So they get into this whole discussion, which we could go into. uh, But for for our purposes here, the, the, the point I wanted to emphasize is that her sin is not an impediment to him pursuing a relationship with her. What he needs, though, for is for her to be honest about her sin and to turn away from it, right? And so we see uh, later on when she goes back to the town, she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. See, God remembers everything we've ever done in the sense that he knows it. But it, in, the, in another sense, when he forgives us, he's removing it as an impediment to our relationship with him, right? Which is always from our side, yeah. not from his. Does that, does that make sense 100%. at all? hundred percent. Like, yeah, like and, he's and I think pursuing her. He is. And I think if I can be respectful here for a second, I think as a church, we can do a better job with that same message. Oh, sure, sure. In reminding people that their sins shouldn't be an impediment. No. That we have to, we have to be on the offensive seeking right. the sinners, myself included, all of us included, to bring them back into communion with the church. I think it's unfortunate that the word repentance has had to come to have a kind of bad connotation. Okay. Um, because if you look at the book of Acts, whenever the church brings the good news to people, the, one of the first, an essential component, repent. one of the first things they say is repent. Believe in the gospel. And believe in the gospel. Now, in our um, English context, it sounds like, you know, be ashamed, you know, you know uh, admit you're a sinner and feel guilty about it. And there's a, there's a sense in which that's, there's a healthy kind of shame that should accompany our, our bad things that we do. But actually, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia which literally means to change the way you think, to change your mind, right? To, to put on a new way of thinking. Now, hmm, how might I change my mind? Could it be perhaps by remembering <laughs> who God is, what he's done, how he loves me, who, I, who, who he's called me to be. Those kinds of changes of mind are the biblical idea of repentance, right? Turning away from sins that aren't in keeping with my dignity as a child of God as a son of God, as a daughter of God. Uh, because when we sin, what we're really doing too is not just forgetting who God is, we're forgetting who we are, right? That's right. We're forgetting right. who we are. We're forgetting our, our dignity yeah. as human persons made yeah. in the image and likeness of this God right. That's exactly who is this, right. this, this great lover. Well, Dr. Brampreach, I've really appreciated this time. One final question, if I may ask, sure. and I'm going to start asking uh, each of my guests, I think. What gives you hope? Wow, what gives me hope? Um, I have to say, I, I'm kind of repeating myself. What gives me hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The more, the, and the older I get, and the more I kind of taste and see in my own life and in the world, the sea of human misery and human sin 
and scandal and depravity, um, the more I realized just how important it is to believe and to share the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, there are a thousand one religions that teach that, you know, immortality of the soul and that will kind of go off to a better place after maybe there'll be dry ice machines there and babies, you know, playing harps or whatever. I don't know. You know, I mean, like Hollywood visions of heaven. That is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christianity, apostolic Christianity, is the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. That we will be with God and one another for all time, not just in our souls, but in our bodies, healed, restored, renewed, um, in a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation that eye is not seen and ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the heart of man, what God has in store for those who love him. That's 1 Corinthians 1. Um, that gives me hope. That gives me hope. Because as bad as it is down here, and it's pretty bad, um, sure can Paul's be. right. This is a slight momentary affliction. It really is nothing compared with the glory to come. So our job is to be faithful, charitable, but also hopeful. And I think that one of the challenges that people sometimes face in the life of faith is, okay, I believe the church, I believe the Bible, I believe the teachings of the church, and now, boom, my wife gets sick. My child gets sick. Parents die. There's an accident. I lose my job, right? So... God has purified your intellect. He's given you a gift of faith. You're growing in faith, but now he wants you to grow in hope. And that, that's, in some ways, it's harder because it hits right home where you are and with your own suffering, your own cross, wherever that is in your life. So how do I carry the cross? It's because by not forgetting the resurrection. Amen. Amen. Anything you want to plug? Oh, yeah. Um, sure. Um, I've got a... Uh, a couple of books that I think would people would love to uh, read if they might if they've enjoyed this conversation, the kind of approach to scripture that we've had here today. Um, I could recommend my book, Jesus the Bridegroom, uh, the greatest love story ever told. Um, that's the subtitle, not my description of the book, uh, but the subtitle is really about the fact that the greatest love story ever told is the story of the love uh, between God and His people, as revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in that book, I kind of retell the story, remember the story in a new way through a new lens looking at God as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, as Jesus as the divine bridegroom and, and the church as his bride. Uh, I also have a, a website, uh, brantpetrie.com, where I have probably about 40 or more different Bible studies on DVD, MP3, CD, if you still have a CD player. Uh, no cassettes, sorry. Um, just CDs. No A-tracks either. No A-tracks <laughs> either, although that would be cool. That would that be would, awesome. Would, it would be cool. Come That'd on. That would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but you can go to brandpetrie.com and there I have uh, Bible studies on like spiritual life, one called spiritual theology. I have Bible studies on Jesus as the bridegroom. If maybe you'd rather listen than read. Um, so that's all there at brandpetrie.com. And then finally, I've, maybe we could talk about this sometime in the future. Uh, I've got a new book coming out on uh, Mary at the end of October, uh, uh, October, 2018. It's called Jesus and the Jewish roots of Mary unveiling the mother of the Messiah. And there what I'm doing is looking at Mary, who we all know very well, but trying to see her through ancient Jewish eyes and how she fulfills prophecies from the Old Testament, too, that sometimes we tend to forget about. Uh, and how, if we understand Mary better, it'll draw us closer to Jesus. Beautiful. All right. Well, check out all those resources uh, that Dr. Bram Petrie just offered for you. And hopefully we'll have them back for a future episode. Maybe we can talk about the Mary book at another episode. It'll be a lot of, a lot of fun. God bless you. Thanks. Another great show is in the books. Please stick around for the bonus content where Dr. Petrie and I express our fandom for singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. And remember that Always Hope is a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. Head on over to faithandmarriage.org for more great content on life, relationships, and culture. God bless. Bonus content. <laughs> All right. So B-side. Uh, B-side. This is it. Uh, if you're still listening after an hour, then God bless you. And thank you for joining us. I want to talk about Andrew Peterson and the musician. The reason I want to talk to him, particularly with Dr. Brant Petrie here, is because 
when we were together at Notre Dame Seminary, the first year we kind of knew each other and kind of connected or whatever, but it was one fateful day where you were coming out of your car that you talked about going to this concert to yeah. see Andrew Peterson and my mouth like dropped because not many people know him. But when you said you knew him, I was like, whoa, okay, hold on, calm down. Cause he's like been my favorite musician ever. Uh, I've listened to his music since- Since the nineties, right? Yeah, oh yeah. And the first first album came out with like 99 or something, yeah. 2000, mm -hmm. somewhere in that ballpark. And, and I was a fan right, right from the get go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember that day actually, uh, because it wasn't just, I said, I liked him. We had, I'd just gotten back from a summer trip where we actually uh, were visiting family in Nashville and we drove to uh, Rock City, uh, Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga right. for a mountaintop outdoor concert that Andrew did uh, uh, there, there on Lookout Mountain. And uh, I drove my family like several hours uh, there and back in one night up a mountain, which for a Louisiana guy is <laughs> like it, courting intimidating. death. It's courting it's death. It's scary yeah, yeah. scary can be. <laughs> uh, all just to listen to this guy sing uh, because he is, he's my favorite living artist, hands down. Uh, and, um, and my family too. We absolutely love his music. So why should people listen to him? I think you should listen to Andrew. First of all, just because he's a great artist. He's a, he, he really is an artist. He's a songwriter. Um, he's a great musician. Um, and he does something very unique. Um, as a Christian, his, his art is completely and thoroughly Christian, but of the highest caliber and highest quality. That was the first thing that struck me when I started listening to him, because let's face it. Um, there, there's a lot of Christian music out there, uh, but just like a lot of pop music, you've got bad pop music and very good pop music. You've got well done uh, Christian music and you've got a lot of poorly done Christian music. And sometimes it can kind of be hard to find Christian artists who also have a liturgical sensibility uh, or who ever use scripture. And the first thing that hit me with Andrew was this guy knows the Bible backwards and forwards and not doesn't just know it it's like woven into the tapestry of his heart and his mind so that when he writes songs they are they're dripping with allusions to scripture now as a bible scholar well that just makes my heart go pitter pat because <laughs> um because he's taking god's word weaving it with his own words and producing something beautiful and powerful and 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 moving and because he's uh, I think a year older than me, he's in his 40s. He also sounds like he wove together all of my favorite artists from when I was a kid. Uh, Paul Simon, U2. Like he's got yeah. this this unique way of blending the kind of musical styles that I loved when I was, I was a boy. Music from the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And weaving them together into his own unique style. He makes it his own. And he's just He's just an amazing, amazing artist. Yeah, what I love about him is it's funny your perspective as a as a scripture scholar yeah, sure, leads sure. that way. Yeah. My perspective as a counselor goes somewhere else. You oh, know, it's, funny, it's yeah. always how it works, right? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we operate from our own perspectives. That I've since I've have listened to him throughout his whole career, and yeah. I've, I mean, I was nineteen at yeah. the time yeah. when his first album came out, and he's a few years older than me. I mean, I'm thirty eight, so he's yeah. probably, I think he's forty three. That's what I think. Also, forty. Yeah, 43, I always thought he was like five years yeah, old yeah. or something. That he's just been just a step ahead, and mm. and I've been. I've been struck by when his albums come out, he's very emotional in the right sense that he's, he's bringing the listener along to where he is in that stage of his life. So if you listen to his albums yeah. chronologically, you get the, the, the beginnings and then you get kind of, the, there's a, there's a few of them where they go really deep, really sad mm -hmm. and whatever he was going through his life, he doesn't say the particulars of, but he is inviting the listener to go there with him. And his reflections are not shy yeah. of going to the depths of, of sadness and of pain. And, and I have so greatly appreciated that yeah, yeah. because one of my critiques of Christian music often is that, as we just talked about with the hope of the resurrection, that yes, that is there. Yes, that's real. But, but not at the expense of reality. Yeah. It's not like some high in the sky, you know, thing like that's just ro overly romantic experience that's going to happen that somehow we should then forget or feel bad that we're having bad experiences because God has already won and is victorious. No, no. It's precisely because of the bad experiences. Sometimes we have to encounter God in those moments. Absolutely. And Andrew's work, his music, at least to me when I listen to it, I, I can say this guy has tasted the cross. He's tasted suffering. And as an artist, he does what every great artist does. He articulates things that I've experienced in my own spiritual life in a way that's true and good and beautiful and draws me into it. 
Uh, he doesn't he doesn't run from the cross at all. Uh, his music is is laying out that that whole mystery of passion, death, and resurrection. It's not just the resurrection. Um, absolutely. Uh, one of the things you made me think too. Another aspect of his work that's really unique for me um, is precise. Well, two things. First, there's a real sense in which he's writing about the spiritual life, right? Like the journey of spirituality of the, of walking with Christ of discipleship. But what's unique is that he does it as a dad and a husband. And that's really hard to find, to find music that's written from the perspective of a father and a husband who's trying to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, So he'll frequently write songs about his wife and about his family, about his children that literally move me to tears because as I hear him spin these lines that are so beautiful, there are moments in my own fatherhood and, 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 and life as a spouse. It's, it's like, dude, were you there? How did, how did you know that <laughs> happened to me? You know, how did you, how did you, and then how did you articulate it in poetic, in verse and poetry and song that's thoroughly scriptural, uh, often liturgical, uh, and always deeply spiritual. It's just, it's just not cheesy and not cheesy, and not cheesy ever. and, and not moving cheesy in a way. Yeah. All right. In the Spotify era, yeah. What's Any, Spotify? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's is on that a, a new kind of it's cassette? On, it's on A-Tracks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. On online, you can access any album all the time. And yeah. when somebody says, hey, listen to this artist, yeah. I go and I'll look them up, but then I'm overwhelmed because they may have so many, so many albums that I don't know where to begin. Where, where would you recommend people to start? <sighs> wow, that's a tough one. Um. For me, Andrew, my, hmm, my this is this is way too hard. It's like asking, "What's your favorite book of the Bible?" Dr. Andrew? Uh, no, for Andrew, the album I keep going back with Andrew is uh, "The Dark Before the Dawn." Um, uh, this album uh, is just uh, for me. It's one of his musically his most gifted. It's it's a real synergy of music and lyrics and gift. Um, but but it but it also is obviously written at a time when he was going through some some tough stuff, a kind of spiritual dryness, like dark night of the soul kind of uh, thing. And, and when it came out, I was going through some of that myself. And so that album has always touched me. Um, I think perhaps his most beautiful album is Counting Stars. That I think it might be the best place to start. That's what I was going to recommend. You're going to recommend that? I was yeah. going to recommend that. Because yeah. um, the songwriting is stunning. Uh, and there's also a lot of beauty and hope and levity in that one. Uh, a lot of reflection on his family life, on, on marriage. That I think if you want a first run for Andrew Peterson counting stars, it's just to die for. In fact, the song um, Dancing in the Minefields may be, may be one of the most beautiful things ever written about Christian marriage, about the actual marriage as a participation in the mystery of Christ and I the, love it. In the church. Yeah. I actually love World Traveler a little bit World more so on, 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 oh on that album. You know, that actually is the song that most blew me away as a, as a husband. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that every every person's spouse is really an inexhaustible mystery. And, the, and entering into marriage is, is becoming uh, an explorer of the soul of, the, of, your, of your wife. Or your, and that's what you dedicated your life to. Yeah, that, and that's your vocation yeah. as a married person. Yeah, because that, that. that album has the family, but then it also has God of Our Fathers, but then it also has uh, Last Frontier, which begins some of the, the, the depth of yeah. the, the, the sadness. Some of those songs. So I think that's the, that's the album I would yeah. recommend to start yeah, with. As a starting point. And also to the, well, the opening song, I can't remember the title. Um, Many Roads. Is it that's Many it. Roads? Yeah, that's it. Beautiful. That a, song yeah. about, it opens with a song about providence and how God guides our lives through all of our, this infinity of minuscule decisions that we make. The first, when that song, I think it was the first song I ever heard by him. And within 30 seconds, I was completely blown away. I was in love with this guy because I was like, this guy's an artist and he knows what he's, he knows how to write a song. He knows how to reflect on Christian experience and on human experience uh, and to do it in a beautiful and powerful way. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, yeah I and, agree. And he opened the concert on the mountaintop with that song, with that song. Awesome. It was fantastic. Of course he would. It was, it was, it was, yeah. Cause God had brought us all together for that moment, for that night. And, and it was a blessed. I would say if you want to just be introduced to his music, that's the album. If you are in a place where you are really sad and you need somebody to really kind of connect with, I think the album that you recommended to yeah. Dawn Before the Dark. Dark, dark Before the sorry, Dawn. Sorry, I just got yeah, my dyslexia okay. just kind of right. kicked into gear there. Yeah. Uh, 
But I would also recommend his latest. Let's hope the dawn isn't before the dark. I hope not. <laughs> Jesus have mercy. <laughs> like like eternally, that would be the worst. That would be the worst. But even his latest album, The Resurrection Letters, oh, Volume yeah. One, I think is it plays almost like a greatest hits that isn't a greatest hits. Yeah, and that you see in the album all his various musical tastes coming together, together. in one album that is phenomenal. And also that's definitely the most liturgical of all his work. So I would say to, to read Resurrection Letters, Volume 2, I'm sorry, Volume 1, which is actually came out after. It's kind of like Star Wars, but anyway. Uh, to read Resurrection Letters, Volume 1, and the prologue to that, uh, to do that during the Lenten and Easter seasons would be a real blessing. Uh, that's when I would, I would save that one for, for that season yeah. of the year. Because it was written for that. As Behold the Lamb of God for the Advent for the season. Advent season, that's right. Yeah. Again, he, he is not a Catholic, but he has a liturgical imagination without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, I hope that the listeners listen to Andrew Peterson. Now that the podcast is over, you have freedom to go yeah. listen to him. I think and, a lot uh, of the songs are on YouTube, too. You can just I think so. Absolutely. them out right there. But of course, I'm Absolutely. sure there are all kinds of other ways that I yeah. don't know about because I'm locked in the 90s. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>